Hello and welcome to this week's episode on the screenplay to the 2003 film Lost in Translation, written and directed by Sofia Coppola. It's a popular classic starring Bill Murray and Scarlett Johansson, so I imagine it's very likely you will have seen the film, but if you haven't, please know that our episode does cover the full scope of the story, including the ending. I'm pretty happy with our recent reconfiguration that we began on our last episode, Amelie, so we'll also be doing the same this time. We're going to focus the second half of this episode on dialogue, character, story, plot, and themes, which are the key elements that make a screenplay shine. I hope you find this analysis very useful, and don't forget you can support the podcast by sharing it with friends who you think might enjoy it, or via your social media. Thanks again for listening, now on to the episode. Hello and welcome to the 21st Rewrite, the podcast about screenplays and the process of writing them. I'm William Coldwell and I'm joined, as always, by my good friend and co-host, Alan Vasquez. And today we are going to talk about Sofia Coppola's Lost in Translation, which is our first female written script that we'll be going over, which is pretty cool. Again, we'll be um, breaking down the script in terms of story and plot and character, themes and dialogue. We'll be also uh, getting some insight by my good friend over here who just came back from Japan. So that'll be interesting to hear from you. You know, I've never been. So it'd be interesting to see like how you connect to this film now that you've experienced or had a taste of what that culture is. Well, certainly I think that the experience of going to Japan is going to forever influence my take on the film because there'll be things that I find familiar now that previously were highlighted. I, I think the film does a very good job of highlighting what is so alien to us about Japan and the city mm-hmm. of Tokyo in particular. Mm-hmm. But of course, I did see the film a few times in the past 15 years or so. I'm sure I've seen it mm-hmm. numerous times. So I've also had a take on it since since then. And I suppose that's part of the fun of these films that are aging a bit now is that we are able to reflect on them and look back at them and have new experiences with them as we get older yeah i did see the film when it first came out on dvd and i remember feeling a little bit like it was kind of boring i mean i was a teenager back then but i did connect to that sense of isolation i guess that feeling that sort of melancholy loneliness that the film is so good at portraying and even as a even at that age i was able to kind of digest that even if i couldn't quite relate to a middle-aged man who's going through an existential crisis or a woman who just graduated from college, but it just shows that it has a universal feeling that it's able to evoke, I think, in most people. And I think that's what struck me from the film is that there's not a lot of things going on in terms of plot. It's more about these two characters and how they feel and using the film to kind of accentuate their inner world. And the script is the same way. It's kind of bare bones, to be honest. It doesn't really have a lot of movement in terms of like this happened and then that happened. It's very grounded in how these characters feel and the moments they kind of share between each other. I think that was its charm. And I think also from reading the script, a lot of stuff was added in terms of improvisation what the actors were able to bring to the characters i think sofia coppola said that she specifically wanted bill murray because he's known to be good at improvising and and just kind of going with the flow so she very much wrote the script with him in mind and scarlett johansson in mind 
So I, I found that very, very interesting and very good for her that she was able to to get those two because she did say that she wouldn't have done it if Bill Murray had said no. Well, okay, those are some yeah. some hard terms. There. There's some high stakes. Just going back to what you said about the screenplay, it's a very short screenplay and that leaves a lot of room for dialogue to be added. And so the characters feel more fluid in the film, I believe, than than on paper. Yeah. However, it also suggests that the scenes are themselves the key parts of the puzzle for Sofia mm-hmm. Coppola. Yeah. That she she's set up the film at least having the basic structural elements and the flow that she wants. Mm-hmm. Although we do see in the film that a lot of the order of the scenes does get changed. Yeah. Which probably comes down to the editing room and and finding that balance. Particularly the opening of the screenplay focuses entirely on Bob. And then he meets Charlotte. And then we start to learn more about her. Right. The theatrical version of the film tries to offer a balance between those two characters. Mm -hmm. And then the scene where they actually first meet at the bar in the middle of the night is... It's on page 14 of the screenplay, but it doesn't happen until about 32 minutes into the film. We get much more time to get to know both the characters mm-hmm. in that sense. And I, I feel that the original version was seen much more through Bob's eyes. Mm-hmm. It's funny you say that because actually she did comment on, she did change that when she showed the film to her dad, which is Francis Ford Coppola, a very well-known filmmaker. And I guess it's part of her kind of tradition to show him a rough cut. He's like the first one to see it. So he actually suggested that it be a mixture of both so that the audience kind of knows that it's going to be both their stories without trying to overdo it. But I guess that was his suggestion to her and and she changed it. Yeah, there's some things that seem very overdone. And then when you try and break those rules, you find yourself struggling. Something I heard recently at the screening of uh, Official Secrets, for example. Mm-hmm. The whole film leads up to a court case. Mm-hmm. And the director, Gavin Hood, he was he was a bit unsure over whether or not he should have a flash forward at the beginning to the court case. Mm. So the audience knows where it's going. And that can seem to be a cliche and it can mm-hmm. seem to be overdone. But ultimately what they found was that the story made much more sense to people if it was included. Mm-hmm. And then you have this issue with romantic stories as well. Do you just follow one character or do you offer both of them knowing that, oh, this makes it look like a cliche. We know they're going to meet because we've had equal time with both of them. Mm-hmm. But I suppose it makes it more meaningful to us to know the situations they're both in when they meet as opposed to only knowing one of the characters. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, I, I, honestly, I think both ways could have worked. It doesn't really change that much, in in my opinion. I think I like both because then we focus entirely on her for a bit in the script. But I think for the visual purpose, because the film is really slow paced in terms like we really linger on scenes, we really linger on silence, that I think it was probably smart to have that level of intrigue that, oh, eventually something's going to happen as a way of not boring the audience you know mm-hmm. i think in a maybe in another film it might have been okay to go in that direction of like just focusing on one character because that's engaging enough but this i think might have helped not losing the audience early on and it's interesting that from what i see there's there's much more about charlotte's backstory in the written version mm-hmm. and she becomes more of an 
a blank canvas for us to project onto her who she is and why she might be in the situation she is mm -hmm. in in the film as opposed to us being told so much about where she's from and what kind of upbringing she's had and yeah. how she got into the marriage that she's in. It's nice how that is offset by the balance of we give her more time at the beginning, but she always remains an enigma to us, mm -hmm. as opposed to not giving her very much time, as in the screenplay, mm -hmm. but then finding out a lot about her a lot of factual details mm. after we first meet her. Yeah, actually, it, it was interesting because I, I did watch the film before I read the script because I wanted to remember that feeling because I hadn't seen it in a while. And then I read the script and I was like, oh, I'm finding out all this stuff about her that all these times I've watched the film, I had no idea that she went to this school and she tried to do that and like all these things. But I do prefer not knowing all those things because you're right then you're projecting your idea of who she is and she does have she becomes more accessible when you don't know too much about her i feel and and again this is a film that's very contemplated it's very meditative it's about the silences it's about um the silence speaking volumes and i think that really helped the film that's why i, I feel it's it's very successful because we are able to project so much into this film so i feel like that's the universal language which is silence because you then bring your own experience into it there's a couple of things going on uh -huh. right from the very beginning which is that they're both dislocated from their normal realities mm -hmm. and then they also feel very isolated in the society around them through mm -hmm. being in japan not speaking japanese mm -hmm. It's funny how they kind of feel trapped and a line that's not in the script is Bob suggesting they do a prison break, for example. Mm -hmm. It's the sense that they're actually, they're imprisoned in luxury. They're in the mm -hmm. finest hotel in, in Tokyo, but still trapped there for, mm -hmm. because neither of them necessarily want to be there. Bob yeah. says he would rather be doing a play and she's just there because her husband is, is working. Yep. Essentially, travel puts you into a, another place where the vast majority of things are the same. So the general aspects of life are there. So you're walking from place to place, you're eating, you're drinking, you're sleeping. But then when that moment comes to carry out a basic action, something just throws you off. The person you're trying to communicate with can't understand what you're saying. Mm -hmm. They, you order some food thinking you know what you're getting. And you get given something that's completely different to what you thought. <laughs> In that way, these characters are constantly being destabilized. Bob knows how to do his job. He knows how to act. Mm -hmm. And yet he's unable to fully comprehend what the director might be asking of him. Yes. He's about to go on this talk show and it turns out to be nothing like Johnny Carson, as yeah. he's been told. <laughs> the no. Johnny Carson of Japan, for example. He's constantly being destabilized. Yes. So that was probably one of the funniest scenes in the film. Yes. So because some aspects of your life are being destabilized, then you can start asking yourself, okay, what other aspects of my life are also on these shaky foundations? What else can I count on to always be this way? Mm -hmm. And I think that's the, the doubt that starts seeping in, particularly into Charlotte's life, I think. Yeah. That she starts to question, where are the foundations of my marriage? Mm -hmm. And I think Bob already knows the answer to that question he's had yeah. much more time to think about it right yeah no i absolutely agree with that i think also 
you mentioned something that I thought about too, which is they're in this luxurious hotel and they're imprisoned by it. And it seems like in this hotel, it's still very much westernized. Like you have a jazz singer who's singing in English so you have a whole bunch of tourists, a lot of Americans, you know, like that scene where there's like a couple of people that are able to um, identify who he is and, you know, he just kind of books it. Uh, I think it's almost like he's trapped with people who are in Japan, but don't necessarily want to experience Japan. And mm -hmm. I think he's probably one of those people too. And the movie initially he is certainly yes. he he wants to get in and get out right yeah. and i think he really comes alive as well as scarlet when they start venturing outside the hotel and start hitting the tokyo streets is when they're both become alive which is what i really really liked about the film too the park hyatt is mm -hmm. one of the most expensive places you can stay mm -hmm. it is very western obviously it's a hyatt hotel mm -hmm. but it's there's this very strange thing going on in Japan where they have this this sense of Western luxuries. Mm -hmm. And so every hotel, for example, will give you this array of disposable products, which we're not necessarily used to in in American hotels, for example. Like that they will they'll give you a razor blade, oh, shaving okay. cream, pajamas to wear, or a, some sort of interior wear. Slippers, oh, that's interesting. Toothbrushes, toothpaste, combs, so all, the, all those kind of things are all out for you when you get there. Mm. And we do see Bob at one point with the the flimsy disposable razor blade that, oh, that's right, that yeah. he has in the um in the hotel room. So there's very much this sense of okay, the, we need to really make you very comfortable, mm. but at the same time, being comfortable doesn't necessarily mean being so they're very welcoming on the outside. And you see Bob, as he gets to the hotel, for example, people keep bowing to him and he <laughs> stops to bow back. Right. And that's the kind of stuff that happens. And it, it instantly is throwing him off in, in a way because it's just a sense of formality that everyone is, is going through in this place. But it, it mm. is quite unusual in, in a hotel here for someone to stop and bow to you, for of example. Of course. That hotel in particular, I think is a nice symbol for this exterior face of the the westernized mm -hmm. well the mo let's call it modernized for now it's modern outward facing japan uh -huh. i've been reading joseph campbell's diaries from his trip to japan joseph campbell is the writer of uh the hero with the thousand faces mm -hmm. for people who aren't too familiar with him that theory of mythological structure has right instructed screenwriters for a very long time mainly because it was adapted by george lucas for star wars mm -hmm. and christopher vogler's book the writer's journey also took that mythological mm -hmm. structure and looked at how it could be applied to screenplays and stories mm -hmm. and uh campbell visited japan in the 50s mm. so this was quite soon after the end of world war ii mm -hmm. and what he was saying was that for us it's not so complicated to mix our modern world and our heritage because the modern world is still based around the culture we came from, mm -hmm. this, this European. Right. And so he says for, for people in Asia, it's a bit more complicated because you have a very different heritage right. to what modernity looks like. 
and that you'll have businessmen who have the front half of their house, which is westernized for their guests, and then they'll go into their back rooms, which are Japanese with no furniture, sitting on the floor, and the paper screen walls and things like that. Mm. And so you have to really transform your surroundings to go into, to go back to the old ways, as mm -hmm. it were. And so that's kind of interesting in the sense that in order to really experience Japan, the characters do have to leave that hotel. Um, right. A lot of what they experience is the Tokyo hustle and bustle. Mm -hmm. But there is also a scene where uh, Charlotte goes to Kyoto and walks around the gardens mm -hmm. and visits a temple. And that's when she gets an experience of just how different that heritage is to the modern face of Japan as well. Mm -hmm. And it can only be found by going out and trying to find it because these worlds are kind of kept separate because they're so different. Mm. It's hard for them to coexist, although they sometimes do. I would go to restaurants and you'd see on one side there's Japanese seating on the floor and on the other side they had Western tables it, within the same restaurant. That's so interesting. I've never had that experience before where you would sit. How would you, did you sit? Sometimes, yes. So. Yeah. If you ever go into a seated on the floor area, uh -huh. you have to take your shoes off. Right. You have to leave your shoes in a locker at the front of the restaurant, and then right. you get given slippers to wear. There's, there's all these rules around shoes in Japan, and even museums sometimes. You would go into a museum and have to take your shoes off. Oh, that's interesting. That's a little different. Very different. Yeah, no, that's really cool. I would, I would choose to sit, too. That sounds like a different experience. Oh, one thing that you mentioned about when she goes to the temple which I really, really liked from her. It shows how much she's kind of seeking some sort of um, spiritual fulfillment or some sort of uh, sign for her because she's obviously lost, right? She doesn't know where she is in her life. And I, and I found that the fact that she couldn't feel anything, you know, I think that really said a lot about where she is. And, and it kind of speaks to character development, which is a very simple statement, but it speaks volumes and... It's not overly dramatic, but just that simple moment kind of tells you where she is in her life. And on that same token, you have her experiencing kind of the same thing later in the film after she met Bob and after having these experiences where she has the opposite effect, where she now is moved. And I really like that sort of subtle uh, evolution in her character. I just thought of that when you mentioned the temple. I yeah, really no, and I, I wanted to talk about that on how we follow these characters' arcs because mm -hmm. it is quite difficult when... The scenes are so distant and observant mm. and meditative. But certainly I think what I had written down for Charlotte was that we see her transformation between her her first experience of the temple, which actually upsets her in mm -hmm. Tokyo. Mm -hmm. She calls her sister and is saying she went to this temple and she didn't feel anything. Mm -hmm. And it, it worries her to the experience of going to Kyoto and going to another temple, seeing a wedding taking place and then starting to cry because it does finally affect her. She really feels she's moved by something she's seeing. Mm -hmm. And so the counterpart, I think, for Bob is his willingness to stay. He's constantly talking about how he wants to get on an earlier flight, how he wants to go back. Mm -hmm. The moment he decides he wants to stay, for me, is his. That's when we've seen he has transformed somehow, how he has changed his priorities, yes. changed his outlook on life. Yeah. And it shows how much he cares for her because just by meeting her and having the moments they've had together really kind of makes that profound impact for him to want to stay. I think in the 
the beginning, you know, you mentioned that we don't get to see them connect or meet actually until about 30 minutes into the film. I think that just was great in terms of Sophia taking her time with us experiencing their sort of isolation and their loneliness. Like she was not in a rush. The script was not in a rush to kind of get them together and to meet. Uh, I think they have a brief moment in the elevator when they first kind of glance at each other. And even that, I think, when it was written, mm-hmm. it was it seemed like a significant moment, possibly because of the order that things were going to mm-hmm. unravel, but it seemed like that was meant to be a significant moment. And when you really watch it back, you see she does just smile at him like you would someone you recognized, also a traveler in the same place. Right. But she looks away very quickly. She it doesn't register. Right. It's nothing like love at first sight exactly. and thinking. Right, right, right. Exactly. And she yeah. even forgets, actually, because he brings it up later in the film and she actually says she doesn't remember that moment. So that's mm-hmm. how you know that didn't really mean anything to her. Yeah, and it, it feels like it might have meant something to Bob. Mm-hmm. And he starts to notice her everywhere. Yes. Uh, and I really like that. That sort of, I guess you could call it kind of foreplay without really making it a big deal. It's just very, you're still very much in their world and they just happen to kind of be in the same vicinity. And I really appreciated how she didn't try to like make that super dramatic or make it, I mean, I guess you could kind of put this in the genre of a romance or something like that, but it doesn't really quite go into its genre cliches. It doesn't really feel like your typical romance. It, it's much more... It's much more profound, I feel like, in 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 its subtleties than than it usually is. So maybe we could talk a little bit about just the initial layout of these characters that we get. Mm-hmm. I think it's done very well from a screenwriting point of view. Mm-hmm. This is pre-text message, or although he does have a a mobile phone, but yeah, he gets a lot of faxes, which today I think would be replaced by text messages. He does, yeah. Or emails. But he, he's getting all these faxes, and the first one he receives is about how he forgot about his son's birthday. Mm-hmm. So we, we immediately get the sense that Bob is someone who has... He's put career above family, mm-hmm. and he's also asking himself, why? Why does he put his career above anything if he's just going to be doing these promotional, highly paid but completely meaningless to him, jobs. Right. And we get the sense, I think in the screenplay, we get more of a sense that he's a bit more of a washed up actor who mm-hmm. has oh, definitely. has yep. fewer opportunities. Mm-hmm. In the film, I, I noticed a bit more of a tweak, in, especially in the scene where they meet. He initially said in the screenplay that, oh, they couldn't get Tiger Woods, so they got me, yeah. which makes it sound like he's much lower on the chain. Whereas in the film, he mentions, I'd rather be doing a play than this. Mm -hmm. So we get the sense that he still has these aspirations for acting professionally and trying Mm -hmm. to do the best work of his career. But he knows that doing the plays isn't going to get enough money for potentially this lifestyle that he's living. Right. His wife is remodeling the house, asking him about what color carpets he wants for the study. You know, these... He's definitely in in a time where he needs to be providing some some income, it seems. And, yep. and so that's kind of interesting because he's doing all this stuff, but he doesn't really know why. 
And mm -hmm. when you watch it as an observer, it's very easy to make a judgment on that. But I think the film does reality some service by saying this is what happens to people. They mm. get stuck. They don't know why they're doing what they're doing. And it takes a monumental shift, such as going to Japan and being by yourself for a week, to really start to figure out, wait, something's not right here. And yes. I think especially as he's repeating these these scenes that very much have translation issues, the first advert he does where the director is, and this is very well described in the screenplay, that the director mm -hmm. is saying about 10 sentences and the translator gives him three three words of instruction <laughs> yeah. basically and he's he's saying that can't possibly be everything he said he knows he's not getting it he and yet he's yeah he's kind of helpless there's nothing he can do except depend on the translator i'm really interested in hearing the the actual japanese translation i, I want to look that up now just to see exactly what he was saying it's a shame it wasn't subtitled in a way but it makes sense from yeah. a film, from the the first experience of a film perspective, yes. to not subtitle it because you're from you're being you're him. But you're now just, that we're yeah. in this stage where many of us have seen it multiple times, it and, feels like it would be nice to have those as little additional Easter eggs of understanding all the Japanese that's spoken in. The that film. would be cool. That would be really cool. And I, and I really do. One thing that I I also noticed um, was that in the beginning they these two main characters don't talk a lot, but everyone around them talks a lot. You know, he shows up at the hotel and you have the people that are the team, essentially that takes him to the studio and takes him to all his different events and on the agenda. They're constantly talking, you know, the director, the translator, the photographer, everyone around him seems to be talking a lot. Uh, his wife communicating through facts, but he doesn't really say that much. And in the case for her, it's the same thing. Her husband talks. Her husband's actress friend, played by Anna Ferris, who can seem to stop talking. By the way, she was like the funniest character in the entire film. I mean, she's like the polar opposite of of Charlotte. And uh, so you have essentially a lot of talking. It's just not really done by them. And I think that was also a really cool way of showing where they are in life, too, without really saying much that really spoke volumes i think uh anna faris's character kelly the the actress yes she's a nice reminder of where they're coming from as well mm. a reminder that things aren't always that great back home either i mean we know bob <laughs> is involved in the movie business as well mm -hmm. there's this point where it's actually the moment that uh charlotte leaves the conversation yeah she she basically says something like Oh my god, guys! You've just got to listen to this. It's about a diet, and then it, yeah, it's She's about really I excited. did I did a cleanse, and <laughs> and yeah, there's just something tonally completely off for Charlotte, who is a ph a philosophy student, someone mm -hmm. who who cares about bigger questions, bigger issues, and can't seem to relate to someone on that level yet. Struggles with it. Struggles with the superficiality of it. And then when she meets Bob, the age difference is addressed later on as well mm -hmm. as perhaps part of the barrier to their relationship being so romantic as opposed to companionship. Mm -hmm. But she's certainly seeking someone who's very mature, who is very pensive, who thinks about his, his own life and 
and questions things mm-hmm. as opposed to her husband who is very much launching his career getting down and doing things and yeah but not necessarily taking the time to think about what he's doing and why it's not too important to him at this stage he's he's just working and he's he's moving forward yeah and i you know you could almost see that they're not really right for each other you know they might be in completely different headspaces but i uh the actors do a really good job at showing how different they are fundamentally to each other i don't know about you but like let me ask you a question do you think that he was cheating on her i felt there was like a I think it is insinuated. It's insinuated, yes. right? Like I, I was, I. They don't outright say it, but there's definitely moments where you kind of get the feeling that he's, you know, not giving her the time because he's off somewhere else. I'm not sure well, if he's cheating on her, but I think his. I think it's more of a case of their relationship might not be right in the first place, mm-hmm. and so they start gravitating to what they're missing from that relationship, and so right. He, I think he sees this lust for life and surety in Kelly that catches him off guard in a way. Mm-hmm. And he, he gets interested in that at the expense of yeah. keeping things. But they're both in this situation where they feel like if they don't argue, if they don't fight, everything's okay with their relationship, which isn't true and not the best basis for a relationship. But it's right. an easy mistake to make as a younger couple is mm-hmm. to think, if you don't argue, then everything's well. Mm-hmm. Not if you've got so much going on inside that you are struggling to connect with your partner, though. I mean, right. it's better to argue and get it out truthfully yeah, and understand where you are as opposed to what they end up doing, which is essentially finding that they're kind of a bit happier when they're not together. Right. But when they are together, they try and force it so much. Yeah. They become that- very interdependent. Uh, there's definitely, yeah, that was very much obvious. I was just wondering because then the question would be like whether she knows or feels that it might or she doesn't care. I think she certainly is feeling a little threatened by Kelly. Yeah, and, and I think one thing that we also get is that, you know, she's kind of in a rough spot where she's, you know, not feeling the best. So she probably lashes out judgment and Kelly's obviously victim number one for that you know she kind of puts herself out there so there's definitely a sort of judgment that she has for her I, th- I think it's revealed very well in the dialogue actually when they first meet kelly and she says that she's under evelyn Wo, and charlotte comments that's a man's name yeah. male author her husband john played by giovanni ribisi is actually defending kelly instantly mm-hmm. and i think that tells us a lot and Charlotte picks up on this. She asks, why, why do you have to defend her? Yeah. I just thought it was funny. And mm. that, I think that does betray something about where John's priorities lie or who he's... The fact that he's not siding with Charlotte immediately and not laughing along with her suggests a bigger rift between them than mm-hmm. many other things could suggest. Mm-hmm. And it's such a small piece of dialogue, but I think it does illustrate that very well. Absolutely, yeah. I think that was... That moment said a lot. I also love the the second scene where Bob is um, with the photographer, which is just amazing. And, <laughs> and that is That's nowhere to be found. In the, the screenplay basically just has it set up with mm-hmm. him getting about two pictures taken. Yeah. 
Well, and I feel that that yeah. was one of those moments of improvisation that really brought the whole thing to life. Having this endless barrage of requests for, can you do Roger Moore now? And yeah, just he's. That was great because actually Sofia Coppola, what she did for that was she actually got a real photographer. So that guy is not an actor. That guy's an actual photographer. And she would whisper to him what to say to Bill Murray. So yeah, none of that was really scripted. It was all on the spot. And yeah, that was that was like probably one of the funniest scenes in yeah, the film. You can really feel him getting more and more uncomfortable <laughs> yeah. and fed up with the whole process as, right. <laughs> as the scene just drags on and on and on. And ultimately, I think the final big translation issue at the start is when this uh, escort comes up to his room oh, yeah. that has been sent by one of the Japanese businessmen. <laughs> that and, shit was funny. And that's just the most bizarre interaction that yeah. I think happens in the entire film. A complete mystery to us and perhaps someone who is more familiar with Japanese culture could possibly explain what's going on there where she falls to the ground hysterically screaming help me help me but <laughs> I mean she was trying to entice him no like she was playing hard to get and it, it feels her like version of it it feels it is, like there's yeah. this whole process that perhaps a Japanese male would who, know what... who was hiring her would know what to expect yeah and poor Bob is just sat there like how do I get this well, How do also, I get this person out of my room? Well, it's also <laughs> her screaming. English, you know, like she's yes. trying to say rip them. And I think she keeps saying lip them, like uh, to rip her stockings. And uh, anyways. And just that's just going back to what I was saying about this, mm -hmm. this aspect of travel, because you, it's not necessarily just a language barrier. Sometimes it's what you expect to do is not what you, mm. these aren't options on the menu anymore. These are not things that you are able to do. There, right. are, there are just things that are done differently. And it's going to take some time to adjust to that, yeah. to adjust to the fact that things are in some way done differently to what you might expect. Yeah. And some of those things, I think especially when you are proficient with a language or you're proficient with enough of a culture, you don't discover those things until later. You might, for example, the difference be between being in Britain and America at times might be small. Mm -hmm. And then dealing with a certain government office, for example, might be a completely different experience to back home. Mm. But you wouldn't find out for a while. Whereas I think in Japan, you're instantly confronted with major differences on right. things that you think probably should be quite straightforward. There's a point where they go to a shabu shabu restaurant as well, where they have to cook their own meat. Yes. And Bob remarks on what kind of restaurant would make you cook your own food. Yeah. But obviously it's what you expect to do. If you go to that kind of restaurant, that's what you should expect to do. Right. And so there's all these different little things going on, I think. Um, and the way that you can't just you can't just be looking. There's a scene where Charlotte goes over to some flower arranging that's being done in the hotel. Mm. Another thing I saw in Japan that in Many hotels, they arranged different craft sessions during the day. Mm. Maybe just one a day or something, but just some craft activity mm. that was going on. And she couldn't just look. She couldn't just go and browse. Immediately, someone comes over and starts to try and get her to do it. And, mm. and she's quite uncomfortable and 
because she doesn't know what she's being asked to do. And she, mm-hmm. she doesn't know what to expect. I really love that scene, by the way, because, you know, she's been in this sort of disconnect from the culture, from her marriage, from herself. And I think it comes very early in the film. And it's the first time I think, well, that I noticed really that she kind of lights up a little bit. She's, you know, when the, the woman finally is able to get her attention and get her to participate, there's no language exchange, but rather, but there is communication. There is a connection there where she gets Charlie to do this little um, activity, but it, it's such a small moment, but I, I really was kind of moved by that scene because, you know, it's the first time we see Charlotte sort of feel something other than what she's been feeling, which is this loneliness, I think. So I really like that scene. Yeah, and I, that's an, an, one of the odd things about Japan because of this ritualization of how you act in society, whether it's mm-hmm. this bowing or it's just the order that things happen. You can very often get by without knowing the language once you know the order that things are meant to take place. Mm. Very, very small little things. But once you get used to the structure of the day, okay, you don't necessarily need as much of the language. Right. Whereas if you had the language, you might not know what's going on, but someone could explain to you very quickly, mm-hmm. oh, this is what you need to do right now in, in this scenario. So it's kind of... You do end up with these cases where someone is <laughs> kind of standing over you, like that woman in the, the craft event, oh, right. basically trying to guide you with absolutely no English, but you pick up what you're kind of meant to do just because it's the options become more and more limited until you figure out, okay, so this flower goes in this vase kind of thing. Yes. What, do you, what would you say is like the biggest difference between the Western culture and you know, Japanese culture in terms of just basic sort of, because uh, you were talking about the order of things. And hmm. so what would you find was the most different or the most interesting? I think it's the, I think this informs part of the understanding in the film as well, but just the reluctance of people to open up, hmm. the difficulties of doing that, of finding out about people's personal lives, the fact that the interactions are so formalized between people. But we see this with Bob and Charlotte, especially on their night out, for example, that they're spending time with people, but they, they're not making genuine connections with them. They're, they're finding party friends who to spend an evening with, but right. that's, that's also what pushes them closer and closer together. If they'd gone out with a group of 10 Americans, would they have been pushed together in such a significant way? We, right. These are the things that... I think... Because there were the odd ones out. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that level of um, privateness in Japanese life and outward formality and then not really knowing what's going on with the person behind that is... There's there's this big mask on the face of the culture in a way and very hard to break through, very hard to, to truly understand. And I think that's where we see that with these characters and even the renaming of some of the Japanese characters. So Charlotte comments that this guy's called Charlie Brown and this guy's oh, right. uh, someone else, but I, someone's called Hans. But she's she's saying she doesn't even remember what what their real names are. She's just learned these Americanized names that they've got these nicknames. Mm-hmm. And 
those things it it just adds to that veneer that really they're not seeing the true picture that they're they're having an experience of what those people want to project to the outside world and not really getting to know them do you think that's because you don't understand because you didn't understand the language or you didn't speak the language do you think if you would have known the language do you think you would have been able to get some more of a connection or do you think yes of course do you think in general japanese within each other they don't open up as well as much they don't open up as much mm -hmm. it's considered very rude to not say that you're bad at something so if you say your english is good they have to say oh it's not so good what? Just an immediate response. You have to say it's the exact opposite of California. <laughs> so if I say, "Oh, I'm pretty good at writing," they'll, they'll automatically say, "No, you're not that good." No, they wouldn't say it about you. They would think you're arrogant for saying it. Ah. But if you said, "Oh, you're really your English is really good," to them, they would say, "No, it's not that good." If you say your singing is really good, they say, no, it's not that good. It's the immediate response is Got to it. say, no, it's not. So they're, mm, I don't stand out. I'm not better than anyone else. So they're modest in a Very way. Very modest, yeah. Got and it. it's, it's formalized in society, this modesty. That's so weird. I mean, it's, it's just a different culture, but... It's a different culture. And I'm, yeah, I think Japan was perfectly chosen for being isolating, though. Other films are of varying quality that I can think of, but... That might have Americans going to Barcelona or to Greece, for example. The idea is that everyone starts mingling with the locals. Everyone start, they start to see this lust for life that doesn't exist back home and all this kind of stuff. Japan has this power to isolate, I think. Mm. And, and so we have these characters who feel very, very lost. Mm. And one thing I thought was very odd looking at Tokyo as well is just the fact that you have become illiterate again for the first time. It was the first time I've mm. really experienced being illiterate as in every single building around is covered in writing. But to me, it's all just Japanese symbols. So I don't know what anything says. Mm -hmm. So if I was in a city like London, where everything would be written in English, all of the advertising all around, mm. You're being bombarded with advertisements. You're being bombarded with names of shops and deals and everything that's going on. But when you're in Japan, you're free of that because right. everything is just symbols to you. There's you can't read any of the writing. So in a way, you're kind of forced to go inward because there's no external stimulus in a way because your brain's not trying to get all this information. So you're kind of almost forced to, to go inside. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. So in a way, it's nice because it turns off that part of your brain that's constantly right. latching on to everything written around you. The analytical mind. But it's also, yeah, again, it's disorientating and mm -hmm. in a way suffocating because you, I, I think the characters mention at one point, they find it very hard to navigate the streets. Again, an issue that has probably yep. changed now that most travelers will have their mobile phones with, with Google Maps oh, set yeah. up and they know where they're going. Right. But... I can imagine the further back you go, the more and more complicated it must have been to have navigated a city like Tokyo and finding right. where you're going with no knowledge of what the streets are called or right. how to ask for directions. That's interesting. Yeah, did you find uh, did you find it hard navigating the streets or 
Google Maps just did all the work. Me, followed my maps, yeah. <laughs> but again, in a way that does isolate you in a new in a new sense. You don't have to challenge yourself to learn a language. You don't have to challenge mm. yourself to ask stop someone in the streets to ask for directions. So both things had their upsides in a way, I suppose. It I see what you're saying. Yeah. It's an easy place to disappear in, I'd say, Tokyo. Right. Very easy to disappear. Very hard to find genuine connection. There, There's a lot of companionship for sale in Tokyo as well. So this is experienced a little bit in the idea of that escort that goes to Bob's room. Right. But everywhere you go, there's bars where men will pay ridiculous amounts of money to sit down with young girls who are their waitresses for the evening. They go to a strip club. They're not really but I just felt that yeah, was paying just for the us. companionship in the same way. Which I've found odd that that's where they were all going to meet up and hang out. Yeah, again, I think that's that sense that there's, there's something very... Maybe they have a misconception of what Western women are like to have invited Charlotte along. Right. That part of it didn't still is a mystery to me of but perhaps that's the idea that they feel that well, I'd I'd never take a Japanese woman with me to the strip club, but maybe Charlotte that's fine because she's a Western woman, she's she's gonna be okay with it. Well she was yeah, and and she seemed a little uncomfortable. Well obviously they they left. <laughs> but yeah, there certainly is a big industry in Japan of paying for companionship. Interesting. And uh so is it the, just companionship or is it like... Just companionship. Just so, to hang out, no sexual activity, nothing like that. It's just simply to have someone to talk to. There's all these layers of complication around it, but there are people... Mm. There are definitely lots of businessmen who pay lots of money just to sit and talk to girls. There That's, are... Um, yeah. They'll take them out shopping and spend thousands of dollars on clothes for them, things like that, just to spend an evening with them. Oh, that's a great gig. And it just, yeah, it's it's all very f- finding an outlet for what's underlying in society. This this area of life that we don't talk about, that we try to sweep under the rug. But they clearly don't. But it's very open. Yeah, it's also very out in the open because um, you can yeah. see these places are everywhere. It's almost like a, a what's a, a contradiction, mm-hmm. you know? It's like, yeah, we all agree that we this is not okay, but we all agree that we're all going to do this. Yes. And it's very, uh, that's interesting. And that that blends into society because they all want to have children. They all want to have grandchildren. Their daughter must grow up to marry a successful man. She should never become one of these girls. Right. The works at these, these bars and takes all, takes all of this money from these lonely men. But at the same time, the father is probably off doing that. Right. Thinking it's okay because it's not my child that's doing that, but yeah. it's someone's child. So the whole the whole system is built on this belief that none of my respectable neighbors' children are doing this, but obviously someone is doing this. Right. A lot of people are doing this. So <laughs> that's it's complicated. Yeah, yeah. No. And I don't fully understand it. It's not an, not an area I was really right exploring or finding out much about. But you should have. We did ask one person we met there a bit more info about it and she was she was quite open about that she said japanese culture there's lots of cheating going on there's a lot of infidelity in marriage so well i mean it's that's very much like here i think you go to vegas i mean this 
you could consider America a very religious country. There's a lot of a lot of religious people, but then you also have a lot of strip clubs. So I mean, to an extent, it's it's very similar like that too. Yeah, it's it's again, it's the same issue, but manifested in a new cultural way. Right. But certainly, I can see how. Take Bob for example, and he he starts off really just hanging around at the bar in the Hyatt. And uh-huh. I think he doesn't even try to go out and, no. and find connection. In a way that might seem, when we know a bit more about what he's going through, it might make sense. He's not really putting himself at any risk out there. His marriage might be a bit on the rocks. He might be at risk of going out and cheating on his wife or something like that. So maybe he's trying to contain that by staying in the hotel bar. But it's not really going to do anything for him if that's really no uh, where no. his life seems to be headed. I think he just wants to get it over with. You know, he's there to do this job that he really doesn't want to do, but he has to do because he has to pay the bills and he needs to make money. And I think he just wants to get it over with. You know, I think we had mentioned this earlier, but, you know, the opportunity came for him to be on the Johnny Carson of Japan. And he, uh, you know, he refuses. He doesn't want to. He doesn't yeah. want to be a part of it. So you can tell he's just he's just not interested in being there. He's not interested in Japanese culture. He's not really to him it's just another gig that he has to do. And I think it's not until Charlotte uh invites him out with her friends and they start venturing out that he begins to show an interest, which is the opposite of Charlotte, because actually she does go out and tries to explore the city by herself in the beginning of the film. And and she comes up short. Maybe she's a better example of that sense of isolation, is that even though she goes outside, she struggles to find right. that external connection that she's looking for. Mm-hmm. Bob, Yeah, Bob is closing himself off to a degree, but she goes mm-hmm. out looking for connection, looking mm-hmm. for inspiration, and struggles to find it yep. amongst this city that just seems to bemuse her more than anything she sees all these different characters and these people and is unable to break those barriers down obviously missing the languages is a part of it but Mm -hmm. yeah i think she feels at some level that what good would it do even if she could talk to everyone yeah because she's she's just disconnected herself i think in her own life in her own marriage she just doesn't i think if she was in a good place like anyone you know you would want to connect to the people that you know in the city that you're in but she's just not in that state of mind so one of the things that i mentioned earlier that uh was the dialogue how there's very little of it especially in the beginning all the talking is done by everyone else but the main characters and and this is a film that deals with isolation and loneliness and it just adds to that feeling the script is very bare bones in terms of dialogue. You know, Sofia Coppola allowed the actors to kind of bring their own language and bring their own words to certain scenes and and amplify that a little bit. Just as how I think she used the visual language as well, just to touch base on that, since it's a, almost like it's not a silent film at all, but there's definitely a lot of moments where the the camera just sort of lingers on them and there's a lot of empty space in a lot of the white shots when when they're there, which really accentuates that feeling. It's just a an example of how the script is really the foundation and the starting point. You know, you can 
then jump into using all these other tools to amplify what the script is already doing. But I feel that what she did have in the script that really stayed the same was these two very distinctive characters. I think she she says she poured a lot of herself into Charlotte. You know, it's pretty much her. And actually, I watched a couple of interviews with with Sofia Coppola, and then she talks like her almost. I wonder if like Scarlett Johansson secretly kind of borrowed some mannerisms and ways of talking. She's very soft spoken, very calm, and like she's just got this very sort of shy, sweet sort of um, personality to her. And I think maybe she, because she's done other films that also deal with isolation in actors as well. I think the film Somewhere is a film that she did which deals with an actor in a hotel, something similar. Marie Antoinette is about this royal, this queen who is isolated herself. I think that's a very common theme in her in her work now that I really think about it. And I think in this she just expresses it very beautifully through the lack of dialogue, I should say. I think with dialogue as a writer, there's different uses of dialogue. The most risky being the dialogue used to try and drive the plot forward or tell the audience things that they need to know. Mm-hmm. Obviously very tricky to manage those parts without having them come out wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then there's also stuff we saw, and I, I really started thinking about this with the screenplay to First Man that we looked at in another episode, Mm-hmm. Of just how much dialogue you can have just to give us a sense of setting, a sense of place. You you would have these long sections of of commands being read over the radio to the astronauts. Mm-hmm. And that dialogue didn't really mean anything. It just gave us a sense of place. And I think the inversion of that is a lack of dialogue mm. where you you need to leave those spaces of silence in order to tell us something without having to write it out. I think the best examples of that in this film, it's written into the screenplay. At one point, it's the first time Bob and Charlotte are spending time together. They have breakfast, and I don't think that happens in the film. It's it's swapped out for another scene. Mm-hmm. But in this scene, it's written that it's far too intimate for them, and they can't connect, and they can't talk. Yep. Suddenly, they're both tongue-tied. Yep. And that dialogue is is interesting because it's, it's lines that don't bounce off each other. They're lines that both characters feel awkward and insecure. And so their dialogue is missing the mark mm. for both of them. They're unable to relate to it. Yep. I think in the film, the best example of that would be after he has slept with the jazz singer and they meet up for lunch. Mm-hmm. And they both don't want to be there. They're both pretty much unable to accept how the story has taken that turn. And so the dialogue is very difficult, very, very dismissive, very, but, but we get the sense that the characters both have something they want to really say. And yet that's not what we get from the dialogue. And so as an audience, we can be on the edge of our seats, even in a scene like that, thinking, Mm -hmm. Why wouldn't you just say what's on your mind? Why wouldn't you just say what we know you want to say? Right. It's pregnant with a lot of thoughts. And I think that's a kind of, that's really hard dialogue to write, I think, where you really have to portray a very 
awkward moment where there's a lot unsaid that wants to be said, but there's a lot of stuff in the way. And there's a, there's a, a hint of passive aggressiveness too. Uh, she makes a comment. Uh, I think she says, well, she's more your age. And yeah. he says, well, wasn't there anyone there to lavish you with attention? So they kind of jab at each other a little bit too. Exactly. So instead of saying what they maybe mean, they yeah. they actually use some, some words that are intended to hurt and right. build up those defenses and, and dig in a little deeper. Mm-hmm. So that scene is in the screenplay because I remember that that moment of her mentioning the age mm-hmm. and that age difference again being quite important to the dynamic of that relationship because there's also that issue with him being in this midlife crisis which is alluded to in dialogue at, at one point which he mentions have you thought about buying a Porsche yet and um, right. which is a very nice way of summing that up I think that whole concept in a nice mm-hmm. line of dialogue and also when he turns up in that orange camouflage t-shirt, oh, yeah. which is also hilarious and yeah. definitely early 2000s midlife crisis. I noticed that too when I saw it this time. I was like, wow, that's no one wears that stuff you anymore. You won't be able to find one anymore. <laughs> but, but still, you know, the, those elements are there. Mm-hmm. But him having an affair with her would also be stereotypical midlife crisis. In a way, mm-hmm. she's, she's in her 20s. And he's about yeah. fifty. So, so. That's, that's true. But you know that that that's why this, that's why I feel that it's such a beautiful connection between the two of them because they respect each other so much that they don't sleep with each other. Mm-hmm. In a way, it's not that kind of connection. It's not like an overtly sexual attraction. It's a, it's deeper than that. Yeah, and in a way, he's that energy that starts building up in him through this closeness that he has with her mm-hmm. he lets that out with his ill thought out affair with the jazz singer as a way of not hurting her as a mm-hmm. way of not having her compromise her marriage so early on to give her time to figure things out for herself as opposed to him being this lecherous guy who takes advantage of her mm-hmm. her insecurity and her weakness so in it in a way, it seems almost like a noble thing, but I mean, I'm sure people could take <laughs> take offense at how that might be phrased, but I can see it as a way of him inadvertently from the you know the inferior part of his his psyche letting out that energy so that it doesn't overwhelm her and have her deal with this. Her husband's only away for a few days, and they get very close during that time. Right. That's an interesting thought. And it would be a life-changing thing for her. Right. Because he doesn't really ever make a move. You know, I think the closest thing is when they're having that, which is also the scene that has the most dialogue, I feel, is when they're passing out on the bed and Mm -hmm. they're talking just just about life. Very tender. Very tender. And, you know, she's asking him about, you know, whether marriage gets easier. And, you know, at first he, he talks about how he himself doesn't, know a lot of stuff and how they're connecting to they're connecting to each other on that level of how they're kind of at a at a loss or at a crossroads and you know when she mentions the marriage part you know he he admits that that doesn't get easier and there's a moment as they're falling asleep where he touches her like just gently touches her with her with his finger 
but it doesn't seem on the foot. Right. Mm-hmm. There also might be some symbolism there because he took her to the hospital when her toe was broken. Oh, that's right. And there might just be a little bit of that was our point of connection. That chance accident of her stubbing her toe mm. might have brought us together a bit more closely mm. than we had intended because it required him to care for her. It required him yeah. to, to wheel her around in a wheelchair and, and try and talk to the the hospital administrator. By the way, that hospital scene was so funny with like that old lady who's trying to talk to him. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's that another great so, bit of that yes. weird slice of life kind of stuff that I was going on in the background. Throughout. Yes, I was dying, especially the old ladies in the back who, you know, they're cracking up at yeah whatever's being said to him. Yeah. Um, but anyways, yeah, go, going back to that scene where it has the most dialogue, and again, it's those little moments, and there's and and that's why I really love the film too. It's like there's no close up on him touching her toe. It's she tends to stay on the same frame and the same shot for a while. There's not a lot of like cutting. Yeah, we get time to absorb the parallel, to absorb the contrast. Mm-hmm. And you're grounded in it. Yeah, we're not directed to look at this detail, look how significant it is. Mm-hmm. It's if you, if you spot it, that's mm-hmm. there for you to spot. Mm-hmm. Exactly. It, it anchors you in the moment. Because you have to pay attention. You have to do, that's how you participate. And I love that about the film is that you do have to participate. You do have to engage your attention and your focus. And and when you do, you catch all those little moments. Because she doesn't react to that. She just lets him. And again, that little moment speaks so much for the both of them. Yeah, the film stands off quite a lot. And it's interesting that the, possibly the most iconic scene of the film, or at least the one that's gone down with the most notoriety, let's say, is the final scene where he whispers something to her, right. not in the screenplay. Mm-hmm. What, what we get in the screenplay is that he, he says he'll miss her. Mm-hmm. She says she'll miss him. And that's the kind of thing we can infer, I think. But what actually just turned out to be one of those odd little coincidences of the filming, I suppose, was that they chose to do the scene that way. And Sofia Coppola said she had initially planned to put in some dialogue there, which just never got added in. So we got left with this open-ended question that wasn't in the screenplay. It wasn't meant to end with this. It's, it's funny how that went down as being so iconic, that missing piece of last dialogue came to define the entire film. Mm-hmm. In a way, it made the audiences with whom it had resonated made so much of that scene. Mm-hmm. And everyone wanted to know what did he whisper to her at the end, as if it was going to be this huge, significant line that was being intentionally kept from us. It's brilliant. I, I thought that move was brilliant because, again, it asked the audience to participate, to bring their own imagination to it because then it's almost like now it's directed at you well what do you think of what do you think is going to happen after this which then makes you go back and revisit their journey revisit those moments revisit the nature of their connection and wonder what would the next beat be and it might be different for everybody i don't think there's a right answer i think everyone everyone's life experience is different and everyone can bring a different perspective and a different theory to 
what they said to each other. And I think that's what what's so awesome about the film is that you you bring yourself into it. I think the screenplay did cover this same ground in a very different way, but leaving it with I miss I'll miss you and I'll miss you doesn't necessarily put an ending to their relationship. It doesn't mean we'll never see each other again. No. I'll miss you is something that people will say to someone that yeah. they might see a month from now. So yeah. I, I do think that it was intentionally weaved in from the start, but that mm-hmm. they found through through taking it off the page and bringing it to life, they found a better way which could be written into a screenplay with mm-hmm. he whispers something to her, but we'll never find out exactly what was said. Right. It, it's not in the screenplay, though, right. which is quite telling, I right. think. Yeah, they probably found that on the on the day and discover that. Or maybe they, they found that in the edit. Maybe they, obviously the actors did say something to each other. So I think the only ones that actually know is Scarlett Johansson and Bill Murray. But I don't think they've ever disclosed what that is. No. And then they shouldn't. I also think that it was maybe the choice was in the edit when they're piecing it together. Here's another opportunity to leave it a little more ambiguous, a little more interesting. I think that it's a slice of life type of film. I mean, I think it's a moment in time where two people deeply connected to each other. And I can relate to my own life where I've met people for a period of time and and then we say our goodbyes, and but then we end up reconnecting again. So it, in my mind, they eventually, down the road, once they're at another stage in their life, they might have another chance at connecting on a different level or the next step. So we talked earlier about this. There's two major character transformations throughout this film. Mm-hmm. And both of them, they're not monumental. They feel more like the characters are assuming the next step in their lives, assuming the next thing that they're going to be or living the way that they want to live. Mm -hmm. I do think it's reflected very strongly in Charlotte by her reaction to the two temples she visits. Mm -hmm. The first one causing her so much concern and anxiety that she went to this temple and didn't feel anything. And I think that's a very natural feeling to have. Mm-hmm. Because you're not going into the familiar, let's say Coppola, for example, is Catholic. The familiarity of a Catholic church that you might find in many, many countries around the world, and then a Buddhist temple. So much is different. The, the, the concepts, the ideas, the rituals, everything are so foreign and alien prioritized in such a different way mm-hmm. that you you might not feel anything. I, I certainly felt that way going to many Shinto and Buddhist places in Japan, the sense that I could see their physical beauty, but so much of the what they represented was a mystery to me, having not had that instruction and clarity about what they really represented. Mm-hmm. Having different conversations with different people who had dedicated their their time and their lives to learning about Buddhism and having them explain it to me helped a little. Mm-hmm. But then there was still a language barrier of what they were really trying to communicate. Mm-hmm. And then 
we always fall into this issue of what terms mean and things like that. But certainly I can see how she felt very lost going to the temple for the first time. It's also a bit more notable that the second temple she goes to, there's a wedding going on. And so that, even though they're dressed so differently and even the process of the wedding ceremony would be very different to what she's used to, that's resonating with her much more than the question of God and what she should be dedicating her life to. Mm. It's marriage that really strikes a chord with her, seeing other people embarking on that stage and she's just got questions for herself. Mm. And I think that's the big development in, in this character. When when we first meet her, she's she's very attached to John. She's She wants to follow him around everywhere. Mm-hmm. She feels very left behind when he goes to work and Mm -hmm. it seems like that time that they're spending together has been a replacement for a lack of her knowing what to do with her time Mm. because he knows what to do he goes off to do his work and she's left still wondering what do i do what 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 am i going to be and she hasn't figured that out by the end but bob reassures her that he's not worried about her she'll figure it out yeah i i I do see it as a as a shift in mental state more than like a character growth. You know, she doesn't they both don't embark on this incredible character shift or anything like that. I think uh that's what's so realistic about the film is that they just have a profound change in their perspective in terms of they come in lost and I think they leave knowing why they're lost. It's almost like they're looking and looking, and by the end of the film, they find this, the, the signpost. Mm-hmm. But we don't see them exploring the signpost or where that's going to take them. We just It's almost like that feeling like they just find the way out in a way, but we don't actually see them on that particular journey. It's more about finding that shift that goes from just being utterly lost into a more of a purpose or more of a direction of where they can go to it's almost like you know what the problem is now kind of a thing. I mean, it's so minimal when you put it like that, but it's so profound in that moment because it changes everything. Because after that, we now get the sense that, well, we feel like they've got some big choices to make after this. It's like a reality check for both of them. We've seen what's working and not working in their lives, mostly what's not working in their lives. And at the very end, it's more like, well, what are they going to do about it now? Just the film doesn't answer that question, but the questions are presented in a way. Yes, there's there's a lot more clarity over mm-hmm. what clarity. is missing mm-hmm. for her. How she goes about resolving that is, it's not for this film. Right. The film is just about these two, how that relationship allows them to find and clarify those things for themselves. Yeah. That's that's complicated. We We don't usually see films that would dedicate so much time to that kind of question. Mm-hmm. And so we can be very grateful for having a director, a writer who is willing to explore that aspect. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's a very interesting piece to read because you're half reading a comedy and half reading this this parable, this thing about just these two people interacting all the time and what lesson can be learned from that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and it's marriaged quite beautifully i think it's uh the comedy the humor really adds to 
the sense of isolation on a funny level, but nonetheless, it, it, I feel like it adds to the to the themes of the film. I don't think it it necessarily takes you out of it or anything. I think the parts that are the funniest is when people are just not understanding each other, and that is the whole point of the film. I, w- I wonder, in terms of Bob's transformation, if it's more akin to him hitting this rock bottom. I, f- I feel like that scene with the jazz singer is actually there's a lot more to unpack there because he seems so regretful about yeah. the whole thing. He seems he seems filled with shame, to be mm-hmm. honest. That that following morning, he seems like he's given into a weakness that has been there for a while. And like I said, it may help balance out that relationship with Charlotte in a way. Because he he doesn't become too close to lecherous to letting the sexual energy out with her, mm. but at the same time it it also feels like a, as a character trajectory, he starts to open up so much more by meeting someone like Charlotte, mm. and so he he then hits this moment of shame, this moment of of regret, and then he gets this new start. It's it's still secret. It hasn't come out yeah. he can go through his life and choose how he wants to handle that yeah and I, I think well there's a lot of things i think he feels ashamed of i think he doesn't want uh charlotte to know because obviously he probably is interested in her in some way and i think that would just make him look bad also just the fear of judgment too because he's married right yeah it, it so, does make him look bad and so there's she, that she does react quite strongly to it right so i think there's that shameful perspective of him but that's really interesting that whole you know just getting getting rid of that sexual energy so that he she doesn't have to kind of feel that too much i think that's really an interesting point i never really is there any shame to being a divorced actor though nowadays <laughs> isn't that kind of the norm with <laughs> with actors no and but, but the other thing too is just I, it's almost to be expected that they would have affairs when they're traveling and they don't get to see their spouse so much and to kind of talk a little bit more about his character i think he's been an actor for a while and it doesn't seem like his first rodeo does it no, definitely. He knows what he's doing. And for her, too. Uh, the way she approached him at the bar, it was so funny. It was just like, clearly, she it's just a sign that says, you know, pretty much on top of her head. I think he is, um, I think he's kind of caught in a loop from what I gather. You know, all these mundane things that his wife talks to him about. There's no connection there. The The times they talk on the phone, is just very dry, very, you know, what what color do you want for the carpets and Oh, it's so and so's birthday. Then that, they're that's not it. they're not there for each other when no. they need each other. There's no emotional um, connection there. We yeah, I think there's a lot more history to infer and we we do get some of it coming through in the details we find out about his life, but it mm. seems on the surface to us that it hasn't been going that well, mm-hmm. but he's also the kind of guy who will sit through and put up with discomfort for a unknowable amount of time which is basically how he deals with his japan trip he's he's there and he's going to go home when he's allowed to go home and he's just going to deal with the things as they come Mm -hmm. but when he makes a decision to stay that's the real him coming out and Mm -hmm. facing a bit more bravely the world around him 
feeling more open to dealing with challenges, but he's also opening his heart up to this person who there's a lot of risk there. There's a lot of danger in, in doing that. Yeah. But the fact that it happens to us is, as an audience is, is fascinating. We get to watch this and we don't, we don't judge him too harshly when he falls for Charlotte, which if his relationship had been a different way or the way that his, his life was going had been different, perhaps we would judge him. And the fact that we have sympathy for this character as well as Charlotte is down to strong writing, I think, of strongly establishing who these characters are, what they're going through, mm-hmm. so that we can feel sympathy for them first before we, before it's time to question any morality around yeah. what they go through. Yeah, no, I completely agree with all that. I think she had very clear intentions with both these characters, and there's only two characters essentially in this film. Everyone else is very much background and she knew exactly who they were. And I think that's why the film is so concise in terms of the scenes. You know, maybe in the script things change in terms of dialogue, but definitely not what that scene was supposed to be about. And I think that always translated well from the script to the to the film. There's something, now that I'm just thinking about it as well, mm-hmm. there's something interesting about the fact that he is constantly, early on in the film, constantly in makeup, constantly not in his own skin. And just this sense that being an actor, essentially, he is being an actor, but he's he feels more out of personal control than you might expect because Mm. he's he's kind of at the whim of everyone else around him. Mm -hmm. And they're literally making him up like a doll. The, The worst of the makeup is this horrendous, very pale, missing the eyebrows. He looks like a marionette doll. Pretty much. The fact he becomes a bit dehumanized by the whole affair of trying to sell this whiskey essentially mm-hmm. i think that leads into a bit of our sympathy for him in saying okay he's he's a real person he's got a real heart in him and that heart isn't being tended to and nothing's being tended to so when charlotte comes into his life we feel sympathy for him as opposed to any concern or or what's this old guy doing hitting on this this younger woman or anything like that? It, oh, it just never feels that way in this film. Absolutely. The minute he got that fax from his wife, I completely sympathized with him. <laughs> I mean, I've never been married, but it's just, I mean, it just seems very mundane, very dry. And, and even in their conversations when, oh, he wants to eat healthy. You know, he's expressing how he wants to change. He's actually trying to be a little bit vulnerable. Granted, I think he's a little drunk during this phone call because they had just come back from partying mm-hmm. and he, he says, I don't eat like the Japanese or something. And she says, well, why don't you just stay there then? Like it, and just the tone of her voice, you can't yep, tell. The dismissal. They just, mm-hmm. you can tell there's just no passion there anymore. There's no, it's just a uh, routine. It's, it's clockwork. Yes. That, that actually I think is one of the second signs of transformation in this character is this decision to change his diet. Japanese meals are very well portioned. So they don't give you excessive portions like you'll get in a restaurant in America. And they try to aim for about a quarter protein, a quarter vegetable, and the other half carbohydrates. So by measuring it out in these exact quantities, it's interesting. It adds this new approach to eating. Mm. Uh, So you're not gorging on too much fat or anything like that or fried things Mm -hmm. and it's mainly 
lots of white rice and then some nice meat or some fish and then some vegetables on the side. Mm -hmm. So it's a, again, I think that's something that him coming from America and then experiencing this new way of eating, it kind of enters his subconscious slowly. And then it, he realizes, hang on, I, I like doing this. I like getting up in the morning and going to the pool, even if it's a bit weird down there with the ladies doing aerobics. And yeah. I do like eating this food. And I, I do like, there is a sense of taking care of himself that's kind of entering a little bit more slowly, but it's, it's underlying that. It, it's coming back to him, mm. this, hey, maybe if I wasn't just living for my career and yeah. if I worked it, whatever I need to work out with my family, I need to work it out. But he's getting a sense of, well, maybe some of this could be around Mm. just changing my lifestyle a bit yeah and and again this is coming after spending time with her so there's that connection there with that shift mm -hmm. so how would we summarize the plot because it it is so slow it it's actually a, an ideal thing for screenwriters to do mm -hmm. the whole thing of writing a log line writing a short synopsis for your yes. film writing a treatment yes. these different levels of describing what really goes on but mm -hmm. what are the the log lines and synopses for Lost in Translation? Well, I would say you have a washed up middle-aged actor in Japan to do a commercial and he meets this young woman who just got out of college and they're both equally isolated and alone in their own lives and they connect during their time in Tokyo. Mm. I would say yeah, it's pretty it's a, much the basic storyline. Try and boil that down to a logline. Maybe it's just ten ten words would be two two American travelers, two lonely form, American travelers. Yeah. yeah, two two American travelers form a close bond over the course of two weeks in Tokyo. You know, it's it's not mm -hmm. the mm -hmm. the basis of this film is not the same as Schindler's List. Let's say you know where the logline would be one brave factory owner tries to save thousands of people from the Holocaust or something. You know, these really high stakes. This is a very close, close to its characters, very intimate mm -hmm. portrayal. Mm -hmm. And so much of it is just about spending time with them and getting mm -hmm. to know them as opposed to necessarily following a plot or story. Mm -hmm. But the plot and story are there. The beginning is they're both very lost. The ending is that they have a better sense of why they are lost and that they're, we, we see the full trajectory of how that relationship plays out over the course of about a week. They don't fall into this very passionate, physical form of love, mm. but they do start to form into this very close companionship, very close bond. I mean, it is fundamentally there as a heterosexual attraction. This isn't just, this isn't friendship. There is some sexual charge behind it, I do think. Mm -hmm. Just by by way of who they are as well, I think. Yeah. There's a sense that there is this mutual attraction. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, and I think the, the sexual romantic attraction is not automatic. I think that that is uh, slowly revealed to the both of them as the story progresses in very subtle ways and in ways of where they're just looking at each other. There's literally just scenes of, or moments in scenes where they're just looking at each other. And you can tell there's information 
being exchanged in that moment, but we don't know exactly what, except the feeling of it, just based on the actors and their, you know, what they're emoting. But it, it is, in those moments, that's when I feel that the sexual charge is there, but they're just unable to bring themselves to really bring it to the table. It's interesting you said that as well, because what could happen with Bob is that he could immediately start going after her as mm -hmm. someone to be pursued, someone to be to be won over. Mm -hmm. And in reality, he, he acts a bit more like he's dealing with someone who is more immature than him. He, he treats her a bit like a child when he first meets her, as opposed to this knockout blonde. It's not falling into those stereotypes. It's he really does treat her a bit more like a man of his age, looking down on her a little bit, like, oh, you're well, you're a little bit immature. Yeah, which makes sense. And he's then much he older, starts yeah. to realize the depth that lies mm. below that, which, like I said, it, it makes sense when we say it like that, but then the stereotype of mm -hmm. this, the lazy writing of this could have been done differently. And I like that it was kind of acknowledged from the start that he, mm -hmm. he doesn't just go straight after her, he just as she just smiles at him in in the lift and forgets about him the same thing happens when he first really starts to get to know her he doesn't think of this as oh here's my affair on the horizon mm -hmm. yeah that's why that's why i think it works so well because yeah. it's grounded in those little moments of the uh possibilities but it's all unsaid and it's just those very loud uh silences i think yeah, in terms of plot, there's there's not much going on in terms of like something shifts the story in like a very dramatic way. I think a lot of the stuff we infer between John and Kelly, I think, drives the plot forward in that sense. Mm. That we're we're witnessing Charlotte's reaction to John, mm. and we therefore understand the decision she makes once he goes away. Mm -hmm. So as it as this becomes this series of decisions, which essentially is the the plot, mm -hmm. because it's so character driven, mm -hmm. those moments that are outside of their control, the way that the phone calls go between Bob and his wife, the way that the interactions go between Charlotte and John, essentially drive forward the story until we get these two to meet, mm -hmm. and then the plot will follow. Well, she's going to invite him to something. He's going to invite her to something. They they play this little game of cat and mouse. He takes her to the hospital. All of this starts to lead to them becoming closer and closer and closer mm. until the story takes this turn where he does sleep with the jazz singer, Yeah, which becomes the key conflict, essentially, in the story between the two of them. Mm -hmm. And then they reconcile. Mm-hmm. And and it's not done in a very dramatic way. I think it, it it it's almost like her way of being upset. Um, it's almost like there's a frustration in that she can't be overtly upset without revealing how she feels about him. Mm -hmm. I, I think there's just that again. All, there's a lot of stuff just going on in the subconscious between the two of them. And I think they, I think the following scene there's also like a fire alarm. And then, like, they're forced to be yes, outside the, the... the fire alarm scene is not in the script. Right. What... I, th I think it really fundamentally helps. Mm -hmm. it, it, it 
again the prison that they're in, this gilded prison of the <laughs> the Park Hyatt. That yeah. the fact that fire alarm goes off forces them to see each other again. And it's interesting in the screenplay. There's one point where Bob is described as adorable, and I thought that those are those kind of things that you really only see from reading a writer of the other gender that you wouldn't necessarily see many male screenwriters writing their male leaders adorable and <laughs> I, I think that translate well you would <laughs> but i think that does translate to um to the screen where he's mm-hmm. he's wearing these slippers that are too small for him right. those are these these things that are adorable but that maybe a male writer wouldn't pick up on mm-hmm. highlighting about their male lead they might yeah fit him into too much of the hero mold whereas there's something more interesting about the personality as a whole mm. and seeing him as this big fish out of water in in japan yeah and plus sofia coppola like just she loves bill murray and like i said earlier she was writing uh, him in mind so um i'm sure like she was just maybe like adding to his ego there a little bit <laughs> uh, i think it i think it's definitely worth noting just as well for anyone who hasn't read the screenplay, that it's only 75 pages long, mm-hmm. which is much shorter than your average drama. Even even competition spec scripts, we're looking at 90 pages usually. It is really short, but I think I wonder if she had in mind how much she was going to stretch those scenes in terms of how she was going to shoot them and edit it, because those scenes go on really long because of the the way it was shot and the music and and all that stuff. So I wonder if if she knew it was going to be longer or not. Uh, Finally, our themes. And we can can close with our themes. Okay, yes. Primary theme being... I feel like the primary theme is that um, that of isolation, which leads to lack of connection. When you're isolated, that means you're, you're not connecting to anyone or anything. And I think that becomes obvious that this is what these characters are going through. And then the film becomes about connecting because they finally find someone to connect to. Mm-hmm. And I think that's at the core of the film. And that's what I get from it. And it's a very, it meditates on its themes a lot. I think, you know, in some films, the, the themes are intertwined with the plot or they're kind of in the background or they show up in, in strokes. But I feel like this film is full-blown, like you're sitting in it. You're sitting in this lonely and isolated feeling with these characters. And it's just the way it's shot. It's the way that the way that it's performed by the actors. It's all very subtle. So I think it all adds to that central theme. It definitely feels like a almost like a poem in a way, like you're just very much aware of what what the story is in terms of the theme. I think the poetry is there in the title, in the sense that what mm. is a poetic way of explaining the sense of isolation that one feels while traveling, lost in translation, mm-hmm. the lack of stability in terms of whether it's actual literal translation or whether it's the metaphorical the things that are unspoken, the things that are also attached around Mm. that whole sense of being dislocated from one's normal surroundings. I think the title alludes clearly to the Mm. fact that the primary theme is isolation first above love or above companionship or, or these secondary themes that are certainly addressed very strongly throughout the screenplay. Mm -hmm. But ultimately it, it does fall back to, to that being the central 
element that everything else mm. revolves around. Yeah, no, I think it all just comes back to it. And like you mentioned earlier, just the setting of Japan is just perfect for for this type of film because of that disconnect to communicating to another culture or to not understanding the way it's the way things are done in another culture. Uh, I think all of that really just serves the the story really well. I don't think I've this is definitely a film that is connected to a theme and it explores it on such a deep level more than any other film I've seen recently that it's just it's just there in every every frame I feel. It's very instructional as well to writers that I think we saw this with Whiplash as well, which had two mm. primary characters. Film is not necessarily the same as writing a big epic anymore. And the more epic you want to go, I feel that that goes into the realm of continuous TV installments. And so what you have with a film is the ability to tell a short story that's not that short so you can really give it a lot of mm-hmm. a lot of meat but mm-hmm. it's it's still a short story it's still mm-hmm. you you can focus on having two or three primary themes and maybe just two characters if if that's all you need mm-hmm. and still create something that really engages with the audience and really gives them a very transformative experience in the cinema mm-hmm. um just in terms of other themes that are kind of underlying this aside from isolation i think there's a theme around the idea of career of what Mm. what people might do with their lives and what they might do for money selling out Mm. uh bob at one point i believe there is a line in the screenplay that says he sat doing this um maybe it's a photography session or or something similar and it just says the things he'll do for money and mm-hmm. it just sums up everything that he realizes it they realize it. everyone knows what's going on but there's this whole facade about the fact that we just got to get it done but really he knows he's just this is what he'll do for money and yeah. and so there is that sense of beyond isolation there's a sense of okay so where do you belong if you want what's the antidote to isolation it's belonging somewhere Mm. So where does he belong? Where does she belong? Mm-hmm. Yeah, what is the solution to the situation they're in by being isolated? No, that's a good point because you know they do talk about his careers. Um, he he's not doing what he, his purpose is. His purpose is to act. He wants to act, and he alludes to this when he says he wants to be. He'd rather be in a play. So he's not living what he feels his purpose is. Instead, he's doing all these things for money that he doesn't want to do. And with her, she doesn't know what to do. You know, she doesn't know, and she's not. She's she's just following her husband. Yeah, which is a temporary solution. Not not even a solution. Sorry, it's a temporary alleviation from dealing with that problem. Yeah, and she she doesn't. She just knows that she's not doing it. She doesn't know what her purpose is, and. Uh, she even mentioned she went through a photography phase and like, you know, she's tried different things. But yeah, I, I think part of that isolation is because they're not living their purpose, their career, what what they really want to do. And then actually to, to expand on that again then would be the marriages that they have, the families that they have being the other part of that belonging 
sense. Mm. And the more that they feel like they don't belong in the relationships they are in, Mm. the more they start questioning, well, maybe they belong together. Mm. Maybe that's a solution. So there's this whole flip side. There's Mm. this whole other side of the coin to to isolation. On the other side of it, you see what would be the perfect structure for for them. Mm. Would they be together and supporting each other? Would they take different steps in their careers? What what would what would this opposite to isolation be? Mm. And there's this. I guess the answer is that it's it's never going to be that simple, but they can't stay isolated forever. They're going to re-enter their reality, and they're going to probably change now. Mm-hmm. Oh, for sure. Yeah, they're definitely like I said. Like I said earlier, it's about you know finding why you're lost. I think they kind of have a more of a sense of direction to to go to. Uh, but yeah, no, I just want to say like you know this is a very minimalist film in a way where. It, like you mentioned, it's not like this grand epic in terms of what happens of in terms of plot. But to me, it feels like a, an emotional epic, like a, a very, you know, character study that really goes in deep. And But you're right. There's so much you can do with just two characters, a couple of themes. And if you really, keyword here being character, you really got to give so much to who these characters are, where they are, what they want, where they come from. And I think as a writer, that's really the fun part is when your characters start coming alive and they start speaking for themselves. I think it's very instructional to us that this is written by a young writer. Uh, Mm -hmm. Whiplash was written by Damien Chazelle at a young age as well. Mm -hmm. That this is one of the antidotes, I feel, to the, the difficulties of writing at a young age is to simplify it. Well, get it down to those basic elements. Mm-hmm. Who are your main two characters? What are your main themes? Don't stray beyond that. Try and figure out how to tell the story just by having those characters interact with each other. And mm-hmm. once you've mastered that, start building it out into something more complex. Yeah, I like that. Mm-hmm. There is, I think there is something to to say about starting out a bit smaller. Oh yeah, for sure. Definitely. So I think that's what I'm going to take away from Lost in Translation. And it's been a it's been a good return to to yes. America after Happy a, to have you back. a couple of weeks in Japan. I'm glad and you didn't get lost. I did not get lost. <laughs> that's it from the twenty first rewrite. I would just like to thank you again for listening. We have some very exciting and interesting episodes coming up, so do make sure you are subscribed so that you don't miss what's coming for the end of this year. Thanks. Goodbye. <laughs>